Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Once again, I don't have that much to talk about, but definitely more than last week when I had nothing. Indeed. Um, but yeah, I'm still spending most of my free time catching up on movie reviews, which uh, I should be caught up on uh, by the spring, I think. Oh, right. <laughs> um, given how many I have and how many movies are coming, how many screenings I have coming, and the fact that I cram through all of you know uh the the fall um and another uh, festival is right around the corner uh and then sundance yeah, yeah. that's right which i uh yeah it's gonna come faster than you think today yeah um so yeah i don't have that much to talk about but i will just uh i guess i'll just jump right in um okay we each have two so i'll go you may go first. We didn't. Well, we also do have a sponsor. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. You should talk about right. our sponsor. Yeah, this movie journal is brought to you by MiniFlix, a premier streaming site for award-winning short films. MiniFlix acquires short films that have premiered at Cannes, Sundance, uh, TIFF, that's Toronto International Film Festival, and many more, meaning you can see great short films available nowhere else online. Uh, MiniFlix also offers several Oscar-nominated and Oscar-winning short films unavailable on typical free video platforms. So now... Now, along with these great short films, Miniflix also has a blog featuring editorials and interviews. This week, they sit down with DP Art Adams to discuss the struggles of Hollywood set life, how to properly light a VR film, which sounds fascinating, uh, and keeping story at the heart of every creative decision. Uh, they also continue their series. Uh, it's a three-part series on the short films of Barry Jenkins. So uh, to check out these and other articles, just go to the page for this week's movie journal and click on the Miniflix banner at the bottom. All right, let's talk about movies. Okay. Um, I saw a really great documentary. This has been a year for good documentaries, I feel like. Um, I've only seen, I think I've only seen one. Mining the Gap, I think, is still my favorite. It had um, Won't Be My Neighbor. There was the um, Crime crime Plus Punishment. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, oh, John McEnroe in the Roman Perfection is one of the best of the year. This has been a great year for... I'm a big fan of Three Identical Strangers. Oh, that was good, yeah. Um, I've heard good things about one that has a long name. It was like, did you wonder who fired the gun or something like that? Mm. Uh, that's supposed to be good. Um, but anyway, I saw a documentary called Shirkers. Shirkers? Yes. Okay. Uh, and... It is directed by a, uh, a Singaporean woman named Sandy Tan, who in the early 90s, um, when she was uh, a college student, she and some friends and a film teacher and a, uh, uh, I guess, um, South American slash American film teacher living and teaching in Singapore made a an independent feature length film or shot it at least called shirkers. Okay. It was the passion project of Sandy Tan's life up to that point. Um, she was the screenwriter, star producer, uh, all sorts of other stuff. Um, and then after it was shot and printed this guy, George, the American or South American guy, his backstory is intentionally a little muddled, Mm -hmm. um, because he tends to lie a lot. Um, took all the footage and disappeared and they never saw it yeah um and so this was the only this is 25 years ago now this is a documentary about her sort of reliving that period of her life and talking to the other people she made the movie with the other actors the other crew members and learning about where the footage is and what 
became of this guy george and how he got to be where he was when they met him um and it's it, it feels like i think we use the term documentary just to mean it's more of a i feel like the term documentary is more about what the movie isn't mm-hmm. in general i feel like when we use the term documentary we're saying it's not fiction okay or not pure fiction do you right. do you agree with that uh yeah i think so i think as time has gone on i think certain certain types of movie people i would say uh realize just how flexible the term is yeah um because but yeah it, i think that's the agreed upon yeah, uh, yeah. assessment it encompasses everything from investigative journalism to film essays yeah. to propaganda Ed- editorial you could say uh, yeah. editorial and this this i feel like is more of a memoir film mm-hmm. it's very much about her life um and uh not always positive she's willing to she has a best friend named Jasmine who's the kind of best friend who's willing to tell her when she's being an asshole and when she's that's the term that Jasmine actually uses Mm -hmm. uh, when she's exhibiting the kind of asshole behavior she's exhibited her whole life and I think uh, I think Sandy Tan enjoys having that sort of stuff in the movie but it's really just uh, a it's it's a it's a very uh, very very moving memoir and also uh beautifully photographed we see i guess this is a bit of a spoiler but uh it's something that is spoiled almost immediately we do see some footage from shirkers so Mm -hmm. clearly she tracks some of it down right um and it's so in a good way so 90s indie so vibrant like colorful like you know um big just like just post new wave like 92 just big seas of blocks of color like crayon <laughs> colored color yeah and the movie kind of runs with that uh aesthetic in a way that is becomes weirdly nostalgic because it's it's not garish it's bittersweet mm-hmm. it's looking back at, at at this time in her life and looking um but i said it's not just bitter like i said bittersweet it's also about how she's you know doing okay now uh and maybe this was something she that made her who she was you know hmm. she would have been a different person otherwise yeah uh shirkers it comes out it's gonna be on netflix uh in a couple of weeks definitely worth uh worth your time definitely worth checking out all right my film is one that i saw a while ago and there was uh, an embargo on it uh that was just lifted this last week um it is called gosnell and it is okay. or gosnell Okay. Still oh, don't. You saw the movie and you don't know? Yeah, it was a few weeks ago. Okay. <laughs> um, I believe Gosnell. Um, and it is uh, directed so, by Nick Searcy. Uh, the actor, Nick Searcy. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Because I went to, um, when I looked at the Rotten Tomatoes page mm-hmm. for this, the movie had a subtitle. Does it have a subtitle when on the movie? I oh, hope well, not because I'll it's s- terrible. I'll say this. Uh, they sent it to me so early uh-huh. uh, that the film itself was done, but like credits. Okay. Like the, uh, so literally it said like starring name, name, oh, that's name. Uh, it, that happens sometimes. So I don't know what it says on the actual thing, but yeah, it's just like, do you know what the subtitle uh, oh, is? Oh yeah. And I'm it's, purposely not saying yeah, it bothers me. Awful. <laughs> it just like, you could say prolific. Yeah. You could say, but like biggest suggests like, yeah, people can look it up, but yeah. it uses the word biggest in a very, I'm going to say Trumpy way. 
right? Yeah, which honestly Trump tends to use the word big to just mean whatever he needs it to mean. Right. The, it's, it's just the superlative of whatever word he can't think of at the moment, and that and that's and so it seems so dumb. Now, uh, admittedly, use that in a movie title. As bad as it is, it's still better than Primeval. Remember Primeval? Um, the movie Primeval with Orlando Jones. That's the one. Yeah, where their big thing they were pushing. I I don't know if it'll be on the IMDb page, um, but I'll I'll oh, give it a look. Ring, this is ringing a bell. Okay, let's see here. Um, Right, okay. Inspired by the true story of the most prolific serial killer in history. They said prolific. Uh, and then it says primeval. So that's, it's not the title, but it's on the poster. Oh, and right, it's just like, right. It's a fucking alligator. Uh-huh. That's not a serial killer. It's an animal. Yeah. Oh, you're being a jerk. <laughs> uh, that bothers me. But anyway, um, so yeah, no, that that does uh, upset me. But um yeah, uh, I mean, it's it's the story of, of the investigation and eventual trial of uh, Kermit Gosnell, the uh, uh, doctor and uh, abortionist. Is that the word? That's the correct okay. word. Okay. Yeah. Um, who, it was discovered, um, had some rather horrifying practices and a uh, clinic that was... Oh, oh. I mean, his... The imagery and the imagery and it's... It's actual real imagery is really like. Oh, they used to use real footage of the. They uh, they recreate it, but then okay. they do show stuff afterwards during the credits, almost as if say like, no, this was actually. Oh, okay. Like it's not like a, an Argo. Like, look how talent, look how dedicated our production designers were. No, it's it's <laughs> not that. It's it, there there. I think they understand that there's going to be an incredulity there. Like people that see it are going to say. This is a movie made by conservatives who are not in favor of abortion, so they're probably exaggerating. <sighs> they are not. Huh. And it's real, like, you said, you, you were talking about Shirkers being, like, 90s uh, uh-huh. indie. This imagery, which is what it was, it's almost like Kermit Gosnell said, how can I be, like, David Fincher-esque in my, with my life, with my whole life? Um and there's little things like as they were searching his house, he decided to sit down at his piano and just start playing. And that's real. That's real. And it's so it's all very, very strange. Um, but I am aware that this was a crowdfunded film. It is directed and stars uh, like noted conservative. So I was like, I've I've heard this tune before uh, in the world of Christian film. My expectations not high. Yeah. But. It was the story, the story by credit, not the, not the written by, but the story by was Andrew Clavin, who is an acquaintance of mine and is a crime author. He's a political commentator, but he's an, he's a novelist and a screenwriter and like, and he knows structure Mm -hmm. and he knows that you can, you can incorporate politics, you can do whatever you want, but when you, if you stick to a very specific structure, which in this case is investigative, it gives everything a forward momentum that will, if you do it right. And if you have, if you have even vaguely competent actors, like it'll keep the audience interested in what's going on. And you don't even really need to veer off in all these directions to make your political points. Like if you just stick to the story, because it's a, it's an already horrifying story. If you just stick to that, you'll do fine. And, and when it does that, it's pretty effective. And then every once in a while, it'll kind of veer off one way or another to, to talk about something that is a part of the, it's part of the story, but not part of the case. When it mm-hmm. sticks to the case, 
it does pretty well. When it talks about the larger cultural impacts, like, no, 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 just trust the case for that. You don't need to make, you don't need to make that point. It will make it itself. Um, but anyway, and so I do think that, uh, I do think the acting is very good. The actor Earl Billings, who I know from a few things, most notably American Splendor for myself. He okay. plays, uh, Paul Giamatti's, uh, boss, but he's been in a bunch of stuff, Okay, but he plays Gosnell and it's a very, very good performance. Um, and, uh, a rather disturbing one, but not self-consciously disturbing, which I appreciate. Um, and it's, and, and it could, you know, it could, uh, cause some political discussion because, you know, when people, when like state inspectors were asked, how on earth did you let this, this clinic get so bad? And this guy do like, literally breaking the laws. This is not a situation where he's just a standard run of the mill abortionist and people don't like that. It's that he did some really awful things, including me speaking of uh, filmmakers in the seventies, he decided to experiment with some, uh, with, uh, uh, like tools. Okay. And it's full on dead ringers, Cronenbergian. And then he, and uh, it didn't go well. And then he uh, went to the Caribbean for 12 years. Or something like that. Like it, not, uh, yeah, but that and that's the thing is so to get a little bit into politics, but it's part of it is like the state, uh, the inspe- the state inspectors said we were told by like the governor or the people in charge that we were not to inspect abortion clinics because people would accuse us of trying to shut them down. You know, so there's a political quality here, and and again. When you stick to the case, when you stick to the actual testimony that's there, the points will make themselves. And so, to the film's credit, it mostly does that. Um, and I do think, and you know, it's it's always nice to see. He, there's not much to his character, but it's always nice to see Michael Beach, an actor that I've liked for a long time. He was in um, uh, One False Move. Um, he was in a Family Thing. Um, he's not. He was. He was a. Uh, Okay. I forget the name of the character, but he was the 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 criminal in glasses who's like the the full-on psychopath in one false move. Um Okay. But anyway, so yeah, it's 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 fine and I do think that Nick Cersei is an experienced enough actor as you know, I don't like it. I don't I tend not to like it when actors direct, but he's an experienced enough actor to to at least under uh, to to try not to do too much with it and kind of get out of the way, um, and yeah, it's it's a film that I think people should see. I recognize that it's politically charged, and undoubtedly that was behind the making of it. But unlike so many of the Christian films that I see, uh, the people behind it are actual professionals uh, <laughs> who are able to cobble together at least a, a, a B level film, you know, or, or like a, I believe on letterbox, I think I went like three and a half out of five stars. That might be a little bit generous, but it's definitely watchable it, to the extent that it is what that one can actually right. sit through it. Cause right. there's some rough stuff there, but it was interesting. I was glad I watched it and I wasn't planning on it, but honestly <clears throat> the producer sent me a link and said, we'd like your, your take on it. So anyway, by, by which they meant, a review, right? Uh, I think so. But you know what? Honestly, okay, here's, here's me like 
I wrote my review, but then I also sent them an email and I said, you need to desaturate, desaturate this film. Like <laughs> it's too colorful. It's too warm. Given the story you're telling and the way you're telling it, it does not, how oh, it looks wow. doesn't fit. And he said, he goes, well, it might be too late, but that's a good note. We'll, we'll think about it. So I try not to get that level of involved, but I also thought like, you know, <laughs> I thought like, well, I can try. I, I, it's, it's so rare to be involved, to ask somebody, to have somebody ask you so early on what you think. And it's like, Oh, I could actually shape this thing. Yeah. But that was the only thing. That was the only note that I had. All right. Well, speaking of uh, a movie that uses terrible real life events to you, to make political points. Uh, I saw a real disappointment of a movie last night. Unfortunately, I saw Paul Greengrass's 22 July. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. It's uh, a real stumble for him because I think it was such a great idea. Like his way of doing it. I think, um, or, using all Norwegian actors. Yeah. So for those who don't know, it's about the, uh, the, uh, the attack, uh, in Oslo and outside of Oslo on July 22nd, 2011, um, we were at Comic-Con while this happened. I don't even remember hmm. that. Um, uh, where a, a um, I guess we weren't really using this term in 2011, but an alt-right um, sure. uh, guy blew up a truck and killed eight people in Oslo, which he only did as a distraction to go to an island summer camp for, that basically was like all kids of parents in the liberal party. So it was like a, it was kind of a, like not a political camp, but I guess it was, I don't know. It's, I don't really understand the camp. I, I just know, know it sounds strange. I've... It, yeah. That it's that whoever runs it is from the labor party sure. or whatever. Um, so then he went out there and shot and killed 69 people, mostly teenagers. Mm. Um, and then, and but between the bomb and the shootings wounded, over a hundred more people. Mm-hmm. Um, and now Paul Greengrass has, when, when, when I heard they're making this movie, I would have been like, Ugh. but it's Paul Greengrass who has done well with the 93. Yeah. With bloody Sunday. Yeah. Uh, which wasn't as recent at the time and with captain Phillips. Yeah. He, and if there is a director that could yeah. do this well, but here's the thing. He ended up making the movie that I was afraid that I would have been afraid someone else would make mm. because what what works about those other three movies and what also makes them very difficult to watch at times is they they with 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 the occasion of a little bit like of setup at the beginning maybe they, they stick to the events mm-hmm. whereas this movie kind of saving private Ryan style like you meet some of the characters at the beginning, but then there's a long sequence of the attacks. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it goes on that t- covers like the next year of the trial. And also it focuses on one survivor in particular who was shot five times and his long recuperation, mm-hmm. both physical and emotional recuperation yeah. uh, process. And, um, what I felt at the end of the movie, I was like, this is the kind of movie where to criticize it, it makes you feel like you're criticizing the survivors. Right. And that's what's wrong with the movie is that it's yeah. putting them on its back and then making some r- really glaringly, even though I tend, I agree with what he's saying, mm. like you using it to make some very pointed, uh, a lot of pointed dialogue about, um, the rise of this kind of uh, anti-immigrant bias. Because right. one of the guys, uh, one of the things he said that he was 
fighting against or fighting for, I guess, was a a complete ban on immigration into Norway in in the words of the character. I don't know if this is what the guy actually said, uh, an end to enforced multiculturalism, which is a very alt right. Yeah, that's um, uh, I think I mean, in in the US, we tend to use the word diversity more than multiculturalism. That's more of a European um, concept, I think. But the idea that that's something that's being forced on people is such a tenet of the, of the far right. Um, that it, it seems like including stuff like that. And then there's a part where the lawyer, um, is interviewing another like head, like alt right, uh, you know, figure about their movement. Um, and the guy says, you know, you know, we've been expanding throughout Scandinavia and even into to the UK. And, and he says, and how about America? Like, why is he asking that? Yeah. Except for, for us, the viewer right now, it yeah. seemed, and that's the thing. I, I mean, I, I, I feel, I feel guilty because the movie is so much about the survivors and how awful it was, yeah. what they went through. And also because not guilty, but I feel weird because I agree with the points that it's making, that this is a danger that we've yeah. seen here and in, 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 in Charlottesville and, you know, and potentially other places, um, that we, we need to not ignore, you know, like the, what was the, the Harry Potter movie you saw, uh, uh, Imperium or something like that. Oh, uh, for me, I was like, you mean Harry Potter? No, the movie with Harry Potter. Imperium, that's the one. Yeah, that was about how we, you know, we we can't ignore the threat of domestic terrorism from right. the white nationalists and the and the far right. Um, and I I agree with those sentiments, but yeah. it seemed it seemed frankly crass to use this story also to. I feel like I, I do feel like the movie kind of intentionally sidesteps dealing with the parents of the kids who died, mm-hmm. you know, cause I feel like, Oh, that would be too, too hard for us to make our point within. There is one character who Hooray. was, who she was a survivor and her sister died and she shows up a, a number of times. Um, but even then she's, I, I, and she's based on a real person, but I feel like she's used to make a point because she, her family, she's like a first generation Norwegian. Her family are immigrants. I can't remember where from. And so like her story becomes part of the points that Paul yeah. Greengrass is trying to make here. And it just, uh, and it doesn't, you know, you talked about Gosnell, um, and the, the script knowing the, the, you know, knowing what to stick to and what not to yeah. stick to. This is a pretty, I mean, it does know, but too much. This is a pretty cliched kind of, kind of script. I think the, the, um, the, I think it was the AV club called it banal, which is the word I've been, I've been mm. trying to avoid saying banal because I just read it in the AV club. I didn't tell me I feel like I was yeah. biting their steez, but, um, uh, that is the, that is the perfect word to, to sum it up. Uh, it was, it's unfortunate. I, um, was really bummed out by the end of the movie. Uh, not, I mean, I was supposed to be bummed out, but I was bummed that the movie wasn't a good movie. Like I'd spent the whole day, like days leading up to it being like knowing, like it was like going to see 993, like, okay, I'm going to see something that's going to be difficult. Yeah. But Paul, I trust Paul Greengrass to, to, find something human in the immediacy of yeah. his actions like he's done with uh his other films um and it ended up being 
just a, a, a real disappointment. Have you ever heard somebody say something and they say it in such a specific context, but it it's, it apply and and an almost humorous context, mm-hmm. but it applies so much to so many things. Okay, our friend, uh, sorry, friend of the show. He's not our friend. We don't. We hate him. Uh, Wayne Fetterman. Um, <laughs> he was on Never Not Funny, and they were talking as Jimmy often does about concert experiences. And Wayne said that he hates going to concerts where. The the band will say like, "All right, get up, make some noise, cheer, whatever." And Wayne said, "He goes, if you do what you're supposed to do, we'll do this naturally." You <laughs> yeah, know, and I'm yeah. sure you can imagine Wayne saying that. Yeah. Uh, that concept, I know he's he's being funny and all that, but I think it applies to almost it can apply to almost anything artistically, which is if you do what you're supposed to do. Yeah. You let we'll do the rest. Yeah. And the better you do what you're supposed to do, the more we'll respond to it the way you actually want us to. But if you just tell us, if you just tell us how to respond, if you just lay it all out for us, we're going to feel manipulated. And what's more is when you make it so overt, you kind of, I feel like the artist, I don't know if Greengrass is trying to do this, but this is the effect. They kind of insulate themselves from criticism because it's like what you're talking about. If you say, this feels kind of banal, it's almost like the, the artist could say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Are you saying? No, of course not. Do you remember the Todd Glass bit about that? Uh, no. About whenever he would complain about changes in airline policy, people would be like, well, you know, nine 11, he's supposed to be like, Oh, I get it. And like, if he keeps complaining, they're <laughs> right. going to be like, what are you for nine 11? Yeah. I love Todd class. Yeah. I was, I was just, uh, watching an old, an old clip where he was, uh, Cause when he, when he and Jimmy launch into their salesman moments, <laughs> it's like one of the funniest things. And Todd glass is just like preternaturally good at it uh-huh. and just, just, you know, I mean, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking you, you know, put a strap on it. It's your briefcase, you know, <laughs> and he's talking about just a box. <laughs> um, anyway, so, uh, what were we saying? Oh, incidentally, before we move on, I did have a question for you. Um, well, I wanted to say okay. quick, Another thing, like, while we're on this topic of like sort of flattering the audience mm-hmm. and stand-up comedy, I went to a stand-up comedy show on Tuesday. Oh, fun! And they did the thing that I hate, which is uh, give yourself a hand for supporting live comedy. <laughs> it's like, no, I didn't come out here as like a you know this isn't charity. Yeah, I came like for to laugh at the show like yeah. i'm not doing my good deed for the week by supporting live comedy quote unquote i hate that it sticks in my craw every time and they do it at the show, at shows that i like i wonder and i mean i just saw the house with a clock in its walls and like mm-hmm. so many other films these days there was a you know the director and the cast saying hey thanks for for coming out to see movies the way they're meant to be seen i do wonder yeah, if I don't like, like that either whether it be that or live comedy i wonder if they're saying okay this netflix thing with their constant uh-huh. stand-up specials yeah. and their movies that are straight to netflix this they're it's ruining everything yeah, <laughs> what maybe. they're ultimately saying is look good job getting out of the house <laughs> uh you know okay so you what was your question for me? I'm, I'm very eager to uh, going back to the gospel thing where i emailed and said hey uh you should desaturate this is that is that like over the line do you think that's like a a a, a Something I shouldn't have done. I, I don't like, know like your I, relationship with the producers. 
Uh, I don't really have one. Um, but it was just one of those things that like, because I've been, I've, I've honestly, I've been consulting on, on a lot of scripts lately and I think I accidentally put that hat on and then, Oh, the email was sent. Yeah. Um, and I guess I do wonder, uh, not about you. Uh, I guess I wonder about you suggesting changes and then going ahead and publishing a review. You know what I mean? Like right. of something that you know, or at least that you, ostensibly believe can still be changed so you're reviewing something that you believe is unfinished i guess that's a little bit ethically but you gave it a good a good review so it's probably yeah like, yeah it's and, not really a problem but and i went out of my way i went out of my way to make sure it's like well don't talk about how it looks because oh, it might right. be changed <laughs> and uh that sort of thing um they did a whole paragraph on the credits though which was uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Be like, this is an odd choice. Uh, you know, is this a thing where they're saying like, you know, is it redacted? Is that the situation? Um, okay. So, uh, this last movie is a rewatch and it's a movie I have not seen in years. Okay. And it was, uh, Christopher Nolan's memento. Um, oh, yeah. I showed it to my students because we were talking about editing this week and, you know, I have seen the movie many times. I watched it a lot for the first few years after it came out. And then I just kind of went without for a long time. So this is the first time in, I would say about 10 years, maybe more that I have seen impact. I, I guarantee it's more, maybe 15. Um, and in my mind since then, like I think back on it as being not particularly like not nearly as cutting edge as I thought it was in, in college and all that sort of thing. Uh, so I think, so you agree Mulholland drive should have won the, uh, independent spirit <laughs> for the one it was nominated for what? Just cinematography, right? I don't remember. I just okay. remember I was getting into a fight about it. Is that what we did? We got into a fight. Yeah, about we got it? into a fight and I, I threw a bowl of popcorn, right. yeah. but we were fighting. Okay. <laughs> I just threw a bowl. And I, to, for the listeners, I didn't throw a bowl, by, uh, uh, a bowl. bowl of popcorn at Tyler. I threw right. it across the room. Yeah, and it just happened to hit me. And no, I, it, the cops were like, not. what happened? And I was like, no, he didn't mean to. Um, <laughs> That's not. <laughs> no, it didn't really cross the room. So... Uh, yeah, but that's the thing. So that's what happened in my in my head is that I just you just become exposed to more movies, movies that are like actually cutting edge and actually experimental. Um, to me, it's a lot like the difference between A Beautiful Mind and Spider. You know, both movies having to do with the inner workings of somebody with tremendous mental illness. Beautiful Mind, you know, it's dealing with some with some odd stuff but it does it in a very straightforward way spider however is this constant swirling confusing mm. mess uh which i would have to assume is what schizophrenia is actually like um so along those lines memento is v- very specifically structured and i don't know if you can ever completely replicate memory loss. I think they do what they can by showing that he will often find himself in the middle of something and not know how he got there. And we also don't know how he got there. So, you know, that's about as close as you can, can go. And so, you know, good job on that. Um, but in watching it again, I think knowing it's weaknesses or it's limitations, I'll say limitations, knowing it's limitations. Um, I was still able to appreciate it on a storytelling level, on a character level, certainly on a thematic level. Um, and just the amount of 
of discipline and organization that it, that was required for us. I mean, I this is I literally said the same thing about Dunkirk that it's very creatively edited and it is uh, uncommon. But at all times, the audience knows what's going on. Like that makes it something of an editing achievement. And so, um, you know, I feel like you and I were never a hundred percent on the, the Nolan train, uh, as like so many other people, like we didn't love inception, didn't even really like inception that much. Um, yeah, I didn't like interstellar. I still go back and forth on the dark Knight, depending on however, you know, was the dark Knight rises yeah yeah that, that one's yeah that one's a mess uh, um yeah i like the prestige more than you do but i acknowledge that there it that has flaws as well but he's like still david bowie part <laughs> that's the best part of the prestige <laughs> i really liked your uh, your read there i like the david bowie part <laughs> i told you that um but yeah uh but in watching memento again it's just he is a very self-assured filmmaker and he is doing stuff that other directors don't do and he has the freedom to do it. And so, you know, good for him. My students unsurprisingly really liked it. There were a couple people who, who didn't like it for reasons that I thought were illegitimate, but whatever the, I'm willing to put it down to them being young. Um, but I was happy that I, that I watched it and it is a very, very good movie. And it's one that's, there are directors that I really like for a while and then I kind of move away from them and sort of over and, and kind of overplay their overratedness in my mind. Mm -hmm. Then I go back and realize, Oh no, they're all right. And, and he's one of them. And that movie is certainly one of them. Yeah. I've, I mean, I've always felt that he was very talented. I feel like he's gone through periods where he didn't seem to know. He didn't seem to understand his own talent maybe. And was making movies that were almost at cross purposes with what he's good at. Uh, anyway. I would, I'd say the same about his ambition, his ambition. Like he's a very ambitious director and that is not a crime at all. Sure. But it's almost like sometimes he said, I'm going to be ambitious. Like, okay. <laughs> and then what? Yeah. You know, so um, speaking of editing in film school, uh, sorry, to you, that's undergrad. Um, but for me, it was film school. Uh, I remember those days. Uh, <laughs> when I took an editing one-on-one class, we had to do a presentation on a movie we thought, like a scene from a movie we thought was had good editing. And I picked uh, The Born Identity, which, what? this was 2003. I don't know if you, it seem, might seem weird to people now, but at when The Born Identity was still like a new movie, mm-hmm. the cool kids didn't think it was good. It was like not cool to like the Born Identity. No. I, like I had to like, like obviously it was a very successful movie with the yeah. audiences in general. But like among film school people, um, I I had to like advocate for the Born Identity. So I remember like my classmates laughing at me um, when I was like the Born Identity, and they were like <laughs> uh, <laughs> laughing into their. Sleeves. I knew you. Um, I knew that was coming. Uh, but I picked the Clive Owen sequence, the whole farmhouse sequence, yeah. uh, because of the use of wide open spaces that also feel claustrophobic. And then also that you've got two characters moving in circles around these open spaces. And the movie always makes it clear what their, you know, geological uh, relationship to one another is. I think it's a really well edited scene. uh, And it's also probably my favorite scene in the entire born um, uh, well, franchise. The, well, and the Clive was, Owen character is very powerful. Uh, yeah, um, and so much so that he that 
there's a reference to that scene in the what I'm going to call the final one, even though they made the right. Born Legacy and then Jason Bourne. Yeah. Uh, um, which I forgot that Paul Greengrass actually came back for, for Jason Bourne. Yeah, and it's just, and it, it was forgotten so quickly. It's so forgettable. Yeah, I, Even didn't, with, I didn't see it. Oh, okay. Even with, like, Tommy Lee Jones and Alicia Vikander, it, it's, that's an achievement. Uh, yeah. Um, David, I, don't, I just want to say there's a reason we host this show together, because as I was lecturing my students about editing, one of the uh-huh. clips I showed was from The Bourne Supremacy. Oh, okay. And so, which admittedly is, is put together in a very different very way. Very different speaking, way speaking than of Doug Paul Lyman. Greengrass. Doug um, Lyman wants you to know what's going on. Paul Greengrass wants you to get the impression of what's going on. Well, and, and that's the thing is I, was compa- I took two scenes that are very similar but are shot very differently. I took the hotel fight in Born Supremacy. I think it's in a hotel room, but it's just between him and another guy in, a, in, in what I think is a hotel room. Anyway. Um, is that the magazine one? I think so, yeah. No, yeah, that's not a hotel room. I think that's like a townhouse or something. Am I, am I... It might not be the magazine one. I don't okay. remember. It's been a while since I've seen it. But anyway, no, I, was, I was looking it up. So it was that, and then I did the hotel fight scene in Haywire. Oh, so good. Which is great. Yeah. And they're shot so so differently, you know. Uh, Greengrass like puts you right in the middle of the action and the chaos, and it's very disorienting and that sort of thing. Whereas uh, Soderbergh is kind of at a distance, not necessarily at a remove, but he's at a distance from it, and it actually seems more brutal. Mm-hmm. the 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 students definitely had a had a reaction to it. Yeah. Um, and I think it's because it's almost when you're in the middle of the fight, you're like, you don't have time to really think about the ramifications of it. Whereas when you are, when you are essentially standing and watching other people fight kind of from afar, you're yeah. like, I'm helpless. There's nothing I can do here. Hmm. You know, whereas when you're in, in there with Jason Bourne, he's remi- remarkably capable and you know, you're as chaotic as it is. You're probably going to be okay. Yeah. But anyway, so our instinct that uh, born equals interesting editing, yeah. I think, uh, um, is is correct. I think Haywire also gives a better appreciation of stunt work. Absolutely, yeah. Um, okay, let's move on to TV. We also both have two TV shows to talk about. Indeed. Mine won't take very long. I'll start with one. I'll start with Modern Family, which is back for its 10th and perhaps final season. That has, yeah. it's, they've said it's the final, but also the, they might not because it's still a hit, uh, as evidenced by the fact that I'm still watching it. Um, yeah. I mean, I've never really watched it, but it's a movie. I, it's a show I stopped hearing about a while ago, except from you. Yeah. Uh, and I'll, I'll check in again. I don't know. Maybe I'll mention it again. If they do anything interesting through the season, but I'll mention it again at the end of the season. Uh, I don't know. I guess it's kind of a reliable show. Like it never, I don't think modern family has ever jumped the shark to use that terminology, which is to its credit for a show to go for a network show to go 10 seasons doing 22 episodes a season and not jump the shark is actually kind of commendable, Mm. but it also has reached a point where it has been stagnant for quite a while. Um, and every time they seem to, uh, there was a really, one of the best episodes last season, um, had to do with the main couple, uh, um, Phil and Claire, that's Tyrell and um, Claire, uh, uh, Julie Bowen, um, sort of realizing that their lives were going to be different now that all their kids are moving out of the house. Mm -hmm. And it was like, that's sort of like, the idea of things changing is 
powerful, I guess, in a sitcom, but then it always seems to walk it back. It always seems to not like, yeah. you know, Sarah Hyland's character is like dropped out of college and is living in the basement. And then like Luke, Nolan Gould, Nolan Gould's character never went to college. So he's still at home. Only one of them's actually moved out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's going as also often happens on TV shows. She's going to college locally so she can be around right. uh, on the show a lot. Um, it, I, I'm I'm bummed by the stagnation, and so it it is a show that has become less about the characters for me than just about like joke counting, which also has it's fallen off. There aren't that many terrible jokes; there just aren't as many great jokes right. as used to be. Usually, one or two good ones. One of the the as often happens with Modern Family because it goes by the old. Uh, I call it the old, but the traditional, let's say, TV mm-hmm. season schedule starting in September and ending in May. Um, generally, the first episode of a Modern Family season will take place over the summer. Mm-hmm. It'll be a summer-themed episode because they weren't actually on in the summer. So uh, in this one, one of the storylines was that um, uh, Claire and Alex, their middle uh, child, um, had both like decided to take a couple weeks off and just chill around the house. And so it became, it became like, like heightening their complete inaction and laziness mm-hmm. um, became the joke. And so there's multiple and they're wearing, they're just laying on the couch watching TV and movies and wearing onesies, like these big, like comfy, like, uh, like a blanket that zips up like type of onesie. And they keep, so there's a reference, repeated references to onesies. And then at one point, the older daughter who has Sarah Hyland, um, uh, comes in and says something and leaves and like, what was she talking about? And he's just like, uh, I couldn't even pay attention. She was wearing like a sevensy. <laughs> um, that was probably the best joke of the episode no. for me. Uh, but yeah, I'll keep watching it. What did you watch? Uh, well, first off, it's, you know, it's silly for me to make fun of you watching a show that people don't talk about anymore because <laughs> I wa- I still watch survivor. Right. Um, yeah. and, uh, he so yeah, to talk about it though. Mike white. Well, that's true. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, you can, you can go and listen to worth playing for, which by the way, I did not know that iTunes does this, that, uh, I had not posted anything new for like a year and a half. So it took it off huh. of iTunes. I'm but, guessing that means there's no, Hey, watch this on iTunes. Cause it's been, that's like probably, half years. that's probably true. Um, but yeah. And so, uh, but then when I, when I added the episode, then they immediately like, submit it for a refresh and all that kind of thing. So it's back. You can get it on iTunes, not to be confused with the now two other podcasts called worth playing for. I noticed that before. Yeah. Someone commented on the website, but I noticed it before because when I was posting, I was like tweeting a link. I was looking for your, I thought you had a worth playing for Twitter handle, but I can't find it. Uh, I got rid of it. Okay. Because that was, what was when I found the other two, but I found their Twitter handles. Yeah. And, uh, now what I, I feel kind of bad for them because first, I mean, I, it's, they both are talking about this season and this season only. So it's like, okay, clearly they both, they, they didn't know that the other one was happening. Uh-huh. So they both put it out there, not knowing that mine existed. And then mine shows up and there are like 
30 episodes yeah. uh, available. So I feel like if I'm one of those others, I look at that and I think, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> this is bullshit. I wouldn't have done this if, if I'd known. So, yeah. but not that it matters. Like none of us are in competition with each other because they're survivor podcasts hosted by people that never played survivor, which is uh, limiting. But uh, anyway, so uh, but Jen and I uh, talk about uh, the second episode. The season is shaping up in in a way that really shouldn't have been that surprising. The theme that I think we talked about is David versus Goliath. And yeah, yeah, it's Survivor. Guess who's winning? (laughs) Uh, That's too bad. It is too bad. But and it also but the producers, I'm sure within the next day, within the next week or two, I'm sure they're going to do a tribe swap because I, I think it will go against their their ultimate desire for the show to have Goliath just destroy David completely. Yeah. Um, but uh, as opposed to a show, a, a season like Heroes versus Villains, uh-huh. where I think they like the idea of, oh, the villains uh, are doing quite well. But people don't like the idea of Goliath killing David. Like now you're getting so specific and people yeah. have an association with it. You know, I think I told you my idea for an episode, and I think you said other people have already thought of this, mm-hmm. but winners versus people who were eliminated first. Yes, people have, have put that out there. They've certainly put out, like, the all-winners season. Jen and I have talked about the first-offs season. Oh, that, yeah, a whole season of just first-offs yeah. would be great. Well, and there's this one player, Francesca, uh, who was voted off first and then brought back, and they voted off br- voted her first off again. And so, like, <laughs> obviously she needs to come back, but we all know that they'd yeah. be like, look, we got to keep this going, right? All right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, so okay, it would be interesting. Um, the problem with like a first offs is that for the most part, they're an unknown quantity. And so the appeal of return players wouldn't really be there for the, the viewers, but yeah, winners, they like, could, the all winter season has been talked about a lot. I don't know if it's ever going to happen. Um, I love the, uh, uh, like whenever there's the project runway like reunion at the end of a season, there's always one or two people that I'm like, was that person actually on the show? I I don't remember them at all. Yeah. Um, all right, let's, I'll move on to my second and final, uh, TV show, which is, uh, another returning sitcom. The good place is back. Um, and once again has, um, completely upended its premise the way it did, uh, between seasons one and two, although differently, because season one ended with like a, where are they going to go next? And mm-hmm. the, the whole, did you watch any of season two yet? I watched all of season two. Oh, okay. I couldn't remember. Yeah. So then the whole first episode of season two, it takes the whole episode to kind of get to the, okay, okay, here's what this one's about. Yes. Whereas the end of season two very clearly sets up what season two is going to be. And then it is mm-hmm. that. Okay. Um, there are a couple of, of, uh, of, of twists and, and additions, uh, including a new cast member, which is great. Oh, that's um, uh, but, the show is still very funny and very much um, in the mold of what it's trying to be, which is a mythology heavy sitcom. Yeah. You know, uh, it's, it's balancing those, the needs of that very well. I, I know like everyone loves the good place right now, so I don't want to be the contrarian, but I'll be the, maybe like the first one out on the ledge to say, I worry about the show becoming more interested in its mythology than in its themes. Cause it's at it's, it's possible. The show is at its best. Not when it's coming up with crazy new ways for the afterworld right? yeah. for the specific afterlife, uh, to work. But when it's actually exploring its, 
its whole raison d'etre, which is what does it mean to be a good person? And it, yeah. the show does that very well. Um, and, and did that for two seasons very well. And, um, you know, a lot of this first episode that was very, it was very funny, uh, and was full of callbacks to the first two seasons as well. Um, obviously it's just setting things up. So we'll see, but that is, that is going to be my worry down the line that it's just like, it's going to be more about introducing new aspects of the bad place yeah. or, or, you know, new twists yeah. like the, um, you know, cause last season we got the judge played by, uh, Maya Rudolph. She was yes. terrific. And she's in this episode too. Um, and here we get a character who's, uh, um, a bureaucrat slash security guard who, who guards the, there's only one way to get from the good or bad place back down to earth. There's mm-hmm. just one door. And there's a guy in like a security guard outfit played by Mike O'Malley <laughs> sitting yeah, there right. at that door. Um, <laughs> of course. He, it is. Yeah. yeah. And he has a, a key to the door and he said, you know, he's, it, Ted dance is going to go to earth. And so he's giving him the key and he's like, be careful. This is, don't lose this. This is made from the, first atoms that ever came into existence and it cannot be duplicated. See, it says right here, do not duplicate. <laughs> uh, and then it's on a little frog keychain, and Ted Danson's like, what system it gets to the frog? And he's like, I just like frogs. I'm a frog guy, uh, which actually I won't spoil the frog guy, uh, thing pays off, uh, okay. later in the episode in a way that is one of the biggest laughs of the, of the season. I really hope they didn't bring, cause I think Michael Malley is a really talented actor, both mm-hmm. comedically and dramatically. He was, uh, recurring character on Glee and was often one of the best parts of Glee. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope they didn't, ju- didn't, didn't just hire Michael Malley to do this one, you know, guest spot. He's in a bunch of scenes in this one episode. Uh, I hope it comes back because, yeah. uh, Michael Malley is great. So that's my fear, but, um, there's still, so I could just like recount jokes, um, you know, there's funny puns. Mm-hmm. Chidi buys a muffin from a, a place in Australia, and the name of the muffin place is We Crumb from a Land Down Under. <laughs> uh, there's funny, net, like, uh, with Ten Dads on Earth, uh, he disguises himself at a, as a bunch of different people, all of which have funny names. The funniest being Zach Pizzazz. Um, oh yes. Yes. But there's also uh, Gordon Indigo and Dr. Charles Brainman. Um, <laughs> uh, and Ma- is it Manny Jacinto or Jacinto? I'm not sure how you uh, say his name. I don't remember. Uh, he's uh, I mean, he's a VIP among VIPs sometimes yeah. on the show in terms of just being so dumb. Th- there uh, are times when <laughs> I see his character and I was like, Okay, we've gone beyond dumb. I think there's something wrong with this person, which <laughs> yeah. means I shouldn't be laughing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's a part he's talking to a guy in this episode, uh, telling his. He's like, "I've had a rough year," and he's like, "Tell me about it." Well, my rough year started about a year ago, <laughs> and then he's telling the story, and it like goes through flashback, and then it comes back to him telling the story. He's like, "And then I was standing this pier, and this guy came up to me, and he asked me about my year, and I said I'd have a rough year, and he asked me to tell him the story, <laughs> and then the guy's like, like, no, wait, you're caught up. I'm the guy. So this is where we started." <laughs> <laughs> all right that's, that's as you know and i it's i say these lines pretty regularly when i talk about the the brilliance of futurama writing dumb in a ver- in a smart way i mean fry is like trans transcendentally stupid like when ju- and the way he phrases things is stupid and it's just there's there's that wonderful uh, episode uh, where Bender turns into the wear car, and so they have. Right. 
I think that's the one. And they're watching security footage. So Bender and Fry are watching security footage from the night before. And then they see, and then Bender walks on and Fry goes, look, it's that guy you are. <laughs> like, that's, it's stupid and yet yeah. incredibly smart. Um, okay. So, uh, I, Jen, uh, has been rewatching, uh, the West wing. And so I, uh, have been, uh, I, watched a little bit with her and then went veering off and started watching it on my own as well. I feel like watching the West wing now would either be a delightful escape or would be the most grating thing in the world. I'm leaning towards the latter right now. Uh, in what sense? Um, just Aaron Sorkin's sort of, um, smug utopianism of the, like, it's not that, Obviously, the White House is not like that right now. Right. Uh, but his version of it is still, uh, I mean, I, I, it's still full of old guard gatekeeper type of sure. type of bullshit. Um, yeah. When I think about that now, uh, I was just thinking about an episode. and I was like, how dare you? And I can't remember which one it was. <laughs> There's uh, and that's the th- it's that's so interesting. Like we've we've kind of flipped on this yeah uh there was a time when you loved that and i rolled my eyes at it i still don't get me wrong i still roll my eyes at it but i find it kind of refreshing and when you're familiar with something it allows you to kind of look at it from different angles and i mean it was always a, a, a nice actor's showcase but getting to see what martin sheen is doing like he plays Bartlett as smug and sometimes annoyingly so. And I think he understands that this guy is incredibly smart, but he knows he's smart and he's going to play that up as much as he can. Now, sometimes, uh, Aaron Sorkin is more than happy to oblige and put him in a position where he will only succeed. Uh, and other people realize, Oh, so I'm dumb here. Okay. Got it. Um, but I do like the episode uh, or the scene. I can't remember which episode is in what he's, he is talking to people in the Oval Office and he runs off a bunch of economic figures. And then afterwards, yeah. John Spencer is like, how did you have all that, you know, ready at the top of your head? And he was like, oh, you mean I was right about that? Yeah. <laughs> and John Spencer's like, yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> uh, there's one of my favorite things. Um, uh, it's season. It's, early in season two it's it's you know the 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 oliver i get maybe it's late in season two the oliver platt episodes uh where the president's like uh ms is being revealed um and there's a really wonderful delivery where uh john spencer says like let's you know we got to go down and see the the white house uh attorney and he goes he goes oh do we have to go now and he's like he goes would you prefer another time he goes well later you know and it's just it's a very sorkinian thing but he sells yeah. it really well um so it's yeah and and there are there are moments on honestly that uh from a political standpoint where i found myself being like oh wow i wish things were like not that again there's a utopian quality to it but every once in a while they interact with actual reality uh and then you realize that, oh boy, yeah, things have changed since yeah. then. Yeah. Um, Sometimes yeah. he gets stuff right. I remember John Spencer, um, uh, and now I'm drawing a blank on the actor. He's in multiple episodes, um, but he was, he's not the uh, Mr. Whatever from Ohio. He's like the other black congressman they use multiple times to represent <laughs> right. black congressmen. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Um, but John Spencer is like, 
essentially lecturing him on like, well, you know, your district has all this gang violence. You should support this anti-gun bill. Right. And, uh, John Spencer gets lectured at right back, which is that, that yeah. one is, that's what I want from one from the show. And in the same uh, way that there's, there's like hate crime legislation and they're talking with like a father whose son was murdered because he was gay. And he goes, and he goes, he goes, yeah, I'll support it. He goes, I don't like telling people what to think, yeah. you know, which yeah. is ultimately what that is. I'm glad and that so, he put stuff like that in there. It but is, I remember which one I thought of and I can't remember why I thought of it, but it okay. drove me crazy. There's a whole thing. Do you remember when Sam is dating Leo's daughter? Or they never, they're never like officially dating, but they're yes. kind of like hanging out yeah. and flirting or whatever. And then Sam has written a like reverse position paper for rhetorical purposes that's pro school vouchers. Mm-hmm. And she's a public school teacher. She's very against school vouchers. And she finds it and she spends the entire episode with him arguing with him about school vouchers and he never reveals until John Spencer mentions it at the end that he doesn't actually support that. Yeah. This is just a rhetorical exercise that they do to prepare them for debates and stuff. Yeah. And he's just letting her go. Like, I'm like, yes, yeah, super, super cool way to treat your romantic interest. Right. Sam. Like, uh, the, uh, like, like she's a rhetorical tool. Yeah. That's the, that stuff just got on my nerves. Maybe not. It makes me not yeah. like. It. Like you're supposed to like Sam. Sam is supposed to be. Yes, he's very likable. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's and that's the thing is just. Thankfully, I, I like what they do with like Ainsley Hayes. I think she's a really interesting Some character. Of Some of it. Some of it. Um, but yes, but Sam they, again. They, they at least suggest. Sam that, tells her you'd make a good dog break its leash, and she says, "Oh, that's cute because I know you." And it's like, no, there's a, there is an element of that's true if you're friends with someone and a certain type of patter is yeah acceptable but there's also just the fact that it's still a workplace a government workplace like maybe and, saying and overly feel- sexual things uh to a coworker, even if she's your bud maybe wait till you're at the bar if you're roblo maybe <laughs> I, you know what i'd i'd go for it um but I think it's it's that idea, you know, a big a problem that I often had was like the way it represented Republicans. And then and and having now watched more of it, it's like, OK, well, they do show up from time to time and they're and they're actually not not bad. But the idea there of like, oh, they're going to have a debate about school v- vouchers and both people and neither people are actually in favor of them. So you're probably going to let someone go ahead and just spout off when you actually agree with them, uh, as opposed to if they had someone who was actually in favor of school vouchers in which they'd say, uh, Hey, you know what? I don't think that's correct. Um, but, uh, or that's, yeah, I, my, you know. my problem was more just Sam treating this person as something other than a human being. In that, in that well, situation. that is, and that is Sorkin all over the, yeah. like I watched the, the, the scene where there's the, the, uh, what is that? Like the AM radio hosts who is, when Bartlett comes in and she's conservative and she's Christian and she's like anti-gay. And so when he comes in, oh, everybody sits down, everybody stands up and she just stays sitting and he like launches into her and he's yelling at her and he's like quoting the Bible at her and not letting her say anything back. He's the president. I get it. And then he finally goes, he goes, you know, when, when the president stands, no one sits. It's like, okay, so she's done nothing right. And I hate to say it. I, I think she would stand. It felt yeah, like, of course she would. Of course she would. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> would, but you need to make, you need the, the capper. Yeah. You know, she's not, it, she's not a character. She wasn't even really introduced until that episode. It wasn't a long standing thing. Uh, yeah. 
it's standing long. Hey, watch out. Uh, so it's just, it's, it's a very common thing for him. 